Okay, yeah, it looks like we're recording now because I see it on the top left. So, hi, Dr. Pete. My name is Kevin. Uh, thanks for contacting me. So, first of all, what is the keto diet or the keto revolution to start off? Well, the keto diet is basically, it's a, a lifestyle. It's a way of eating where you reduce the amount of carbohydrates and simple sugars in your diet. Uh, the in, there's an increase in fat because when you decrease the amount of carbohydrates, there's a reduction in calories. So on the ketogenic diet, we increase the amount of fat to replace the amount of calories you, that you lose in the carbohydrates. And then the diet also has moderate protein in it. Uh, and if the diet's being done correctly, it's about the same amount of protein that somebody normally eats on the standard American diet, which is for your reference is 55% carbohydrates, about uh, 20% uh, protein and uh, a roughly 20% fat somewhere in that range. Okay. So when you, when you say remove or is it reduce carbohydrates or remove altogether? No, well, you can't lower them altogether because um, all four of the major macronutrients, whether you're talking about fat, uh, protein, or... No, I mean carbohydrates specifically. Do you, do you just stop consuming carbohydrates or do you lower the amount of carbohydrates? You, you lower eat? the amount of carbohydrates that you're eating. Okay. And, and so I know for a fact that your brain runs off of glucose, right? Like that's the main source of energy that your brain runs off of. How does that play into reducing the, the amount of carbs? Because I know like your body could use fat for energy, right? Mostly. And that's, and that's a, a better way to go about it from a diet perspective. But like how does, right. how does the reducing carbs affect your like You've actually opened a can of worms. So let's deal with the brain first. It actually yeah. turns out that your, your brain not only uh, utilizes glucose, but it's also very capable of also utilizing uh, what's called beta-hydroxybutyrate, which is a fat molecule that is the byproduct of fat metabolism. You said beta-hydroxy, what is that? Say that five times fast. Beta-hydroxybutyrate butyrate okay yeah so and and the scientific data for this goes back a really long ways uh in the 50s there was this guy named cahill who was analyzing uh patients in a research program who were being deliberately starved and he was able to show that uh that first off, when you withhold calories from somebody, so you put them on a diet where the calories are restricted, that they automatically begin uh, producing beta-hydroxybutyrate and, and burning fat, right, as, yeah. as a dominant source of calories. Um, and, but he took that research uh, several steps actually forward. And um, he was able to determine that the brain was running on beta-hydroxybutyrate to, to compensate for the, for the reduction in glucose that was in the bloodstream, right? So when okay. you, you start to restrict somebody's calories, uh, as you pointed out, the blood glucose is going to go down because they, they have actually a very small amount of glycogen stored in their, uh, 
cellular systems and the brain has to have something to run on and it runs on uh, ketones, beta-hydroxybutyrate, which is one of the central ketones. There's actually uh, three of them. Okay. But, but BHB for short uh, is one of the dominant ketones that the brain is running on. So that's actually a myth that's really out there that you see it's bounced around in the popular literature a lot and even a, a great deal or a high percentage of the medical establishment still thinks that the brain can only run on glucose. So it, it actually, um, it, it actually is not true. Okay. So here's my question now. Um, and this is all speculation because I have, I, you're the doctor, I'm not. But if I had to guess just from a speculation point of view, there's a reason why your brain runs off of glucose and that's its main, like, what should I say, naturally preferred method of energy, right? Using energy. Now, is there any long-term effects of it running on the buter, the word I can't pronounce? Um, Just call it BHB. BHB. Yeah. So is there a, is there a long-term uh, uh, side effect of, of, have, of somewhat forcing your brain to run off BHB? Um, or is that hasn't been studied? Or, or I mean, what well, do you say to that? That's actually another good question. So, uh, and I have to deal with that in, in part. So the first thing is, is that if you look uh, at humans evolutionarily, uh, we, we were running on keto, keto diets long before we started operating in a world where uh, glucose uh, was, and the carbohydrate, I call it a platform, actually exists. That did not happen until around uh, 10,000 years ago when we shifted to, uh, you know, when civilization started growing large quantities of grains and things like that. Um, so in terms of human evolution, we, we were actually programmed to burn fat long before carbohydrates started to influence our existence. So most of, of the keto scientists, and, and to understand the history of this, it, it, you know, and maybe that goes beyond the, the, the podcast here or, or not, I'm not really sure, but, but to understand the history of this, uh, the ketogenic diet goes back a long ways. In the, in the mid 1800s is when things were first published about this. And, okay. uh, and then in the early 1900s, uh, the diet was being used, uh, one, to, um, to control diabetes. That was back in the days when they didn't know the difference between type one and type two. But, they, but the doctors then knew that if you put these patients, and they were mixed patients, some of them were type one, some were type two, they didn't know the difference back then. But if you put them on a diet that was low in carbohydrates and high in fat, that you could stabilize these people, you could stabilize the type ones, for sure, right? These okay. are guys who cannot produce insulin. And the type twos, basically, they recovered. If you kept them on that eating regime, they, they recovered. And then not long after that, the diet was used to also reverse epileptic uh, patients. Certain okay. epilepsy can be reversed if, if the individuals are on a, a properly done ketogenic diet. And then as I was getting to what I said earlier, in the 50s, this guy Cahill came on. 
<clears throat> and did all kinds of really well done studies looking at calorie restriction uh, and what happens to people, you know, that are starving or put under conditions that are, that are starving. And back then you could do things with patients and research environments that you could not do today because right. of the, you know, the constraints on how you treat them. But, you know, the bottom line was, was that he was able to learn a lot about the fact that fat metabolism actually dominates when you bring the uh, carbohydrates down low enough. And the issue around the, the BHB that we already discussed, the fact that babies, when they're born into this world, are in full ketosis. Mm. Um, so actually, and then after that, we move into the 60s. And we get, just jump forward into the 80s when this guy came along. His name was Stephen Finney. Um, and I'm ignoring a lot of, of really good stuff that came out that had to do with the Inuits and study of the Maasai warriors in Africa and all that. But you jump to the eighties when Finney came in and he was, uh, investigating the ketogenic diet in athletes, uh, and looking at broad questions about it, like the safety of the diet, if any sort of like negative things were happening with these people when they were put on a ketogenic diet. And those studies were really well done because they actually were controlling the diet of their patients, which when you flip this coin and you start looking at the medical establishment and how they did their work, usually they were asking patients to eat a certain way, but the way they ascertained whether these individuals actually ate that way were by using food surveys, which now we know notoriously are not accurate. Yeah, people rely on it. So, so it sounds like what you're getting at is basically that uh, BHB is the body's, the natural human body's way of uh, using or, or or producing energy for the brain. And then the glucose that it's popular for now is actually the temporary solution as opposed yeah, to- Yeah, your brain other. is entirely flexible. It can use either substrate and, um, and the other thing about BHB that's important to recognize is that there's more and more data suggesting that actually BHB has hormonal effects. It's a signaling molecule, like at least right now, it's very clear in the data that it's a signaling molecule. It, it has, uh, it decreases the amount of systemic inflammation in people that are running high BHBs, which would be people like me, um, because I got into all this because I was pre-diabetic, all right, okay. of about two years ago. And, you know, I, I did what most anyone does. You listen to the doctor and they had me doing the Mediterranean diet that still has around 55% carbohydrates in it. Uh, I, I'm a PhD biochemist. So one of the first things I did was go out and get a blood meter and I was monitoring my fasting blood sugar. And I saw it just, my fasting glucose was just going up and I wasn't getting any better. And it, it was only accidentally more or less that I, I got onto the ketogenic diet because I saw a TED talk by, and this is really a famous TED talk at this point by Dr. Mm -hmm. um, Sarah Hallberg, who's one of the Verda health um, scientists. And, uh, and when I saw her talk, you know, a light went off because she was like, you know, if you want to reverse diabetes. The only thing you really need to do is reduce the carbohydrates. I mean, that is an oversimplification of it, but she was like, you just reduce the, the carbohydrates and you're going to see 
your fasting glucose is going to normalize and your A1C is going to, uh, is going to come down. And in fact, those changes happen really, really fast. I, I reversed my uh, prediabetes in 52 days as defined by the sugar and the A1C. Now, there are lots of other things that are part of being diabetic that take longer to reverse. And, um, and I may have drifted away from your question. I'm not really sure. So let me pause and see where we're no, at. No, it's okay. It's okay. I'm following. And I think anyone listening could, will be following too. I, I get it. But um, I do have one stupid question just to clear it up because the way how I want to, I want to learn about it is just from my bare bones, like starting off um, not knowing anything. So when you say carbohydrates, right? Um, stupid question. We're not just talking about refined carbs and sugar. We're not talking about bread, pasta, sugar. I mean, we are talking about that, but we're also talking about um, any, any other source of food that has high carbs. So like white potatoes would be included in what you like. So define carbohydrates in the keto diet. Um, so in, in the ketogenic uh, lifestyle, the, the keto lifestyle, uh, mm-hmm. all carbohydrates have to be, uh, reduced and we can talk about levels in a second, right? Not okay. pe- people are all individuals. We all have different carbohydrate tolerances and so on. And it also depends on whether you have a compelling reason or not for reducing the carbs. Like in, in the case of diabetics or people that are seriously obese or seriously, uh, afflicted by cardiovascular disease, those three categories have compelling reasons to lower the carbs. Now, somebody else, like take my wife, for example, who just wants to improve her metabolic health overall, they, they want to reduce carbs too, but they, they don't have to go to the extreme that we do. All right, now, with that laid out, why are all carbs or carbohydrates included in this? Because it doesn't matter the form that the carbohydrate comes to you and, uh, in, in, in how you internalize it, how you eat it. The bottom line is when it gets broken down, it's going to go into your blood as glucose. So you can argue about the different sources about this, like a simple sugar, like out of the sugar bowl. Mm -hmm. Um, that's actually not pure glucose, right? It's 50% glucose, 50% fructose. And those two things are bonded together by a chemical bond. So when you eat that, it is going to end up ultimately in your blood as glucose and fructose. That happens really fast. And uh, generally speaking, if you're measuring uh, your finger sticking and measuring your blood, uh, you're going to see a pretty substantial uh, peak for for the intake of that refined sugar. And then it's going to, if, if you're operating in a normal sense with the expression of insulin, then you're going to see that peak drop off sharply. Right. The difference between that and a grain or the potatoes is that in, in those cases, you're also going to see a peak, but, and it will probably be uh, it's peak. The, the max will probably be a little bit lower than, than the spike you would get out of a refined sugar. But the, the problem with the grains and the potatoes is that you're going to get 
a fairly massive bell curve that's going to be extended out for a long period of time. And we're talking hours. And for mm. somebody who's like, and, and the reason for that is because of the, uh, the fiber, it, you know, it takes longer to digest it. So the bottom line is you start to generate this glucose peak in your blood and it stays up for, for hours. And in, in the case of a diabetic, you're, that's not the only meal you're eating that day. You're going to be eating other food. And in a five-hour period, you're probably going to eat more food, which means that your blood glucose is going to be pushed up. And like I've mm. actually measured this stuff on myself. I've, I've done a lot of N, what we call N1 experiments. And, and in the early days, if I ate grains that were supposedly okay because they had all this fiber in them, my blood, blood glucose wasn't just elevated for the rest of the day. It was elevated into the next day as well. So like, basically, if you have a compelling reason to reverse a metabolic condition, like in my case, the diabetes, uh, you really need to reduce the carbohydrates across the board and not, I mean, we, we have an acronym we call no GPS, no grains, no potatoes, and no refined uh, sugars. And that, that's a simplification of, the, of this, but and it's not that I don't eat things that have carbohydrates in them, but, but I, I limit what I eat to the kinds of plants and things like that, like broccoli, dark green vegetables, right? They have relatively low carb content. And for those of us that have a compelling reason to be on a ketogenic diet, we, we limit the amount of total carbs on a daily basis to 50 grams or less. That's how okay. we modulate this. And someone like my wife, who just wants to, uh, you know, have better metabolic health, she's going to be coming in around 100 to 150 grams a day. So it's more flexible for her. If she wants to have, you know, some bread with her eggs or whatever, uh, she can do that. She just is not, she's not going full bore anymore you know, on, on meals, right? She's not gotcha. going to a restaurant ordering, you know, tons of carbohydrate laden stuff and then eating it. Right. And where do, so two, I have two questions to ask. Well, one's more a comment, more. the other one is a question. Um, and where do, where do fruits lie in there now? Now, uh, like how, how does fruits like a banana or, or strawberries fall in the, in the keto diet? Like, um, it, do they have a significant amount of carbs in them that you have to limit to the morning? Cause you said you're, you're doing, so you're still consuming some carbs, right? Cause you said 50 yeah. grams a day. So it's not like you're, you're consuming zero, right? No, like, no way to get to zero. It's not, it's virtually impossible. Right. Right. Uh, because even meat, there's going to be some glycogen in meat, right? So yeah, you're not, any, anyone who's talking to you about zero carbs is not being accurate, or maybe they don't understand. But you're raising a good thing about the fruit. Not all fruits are created equal. So basically on a ketogenic diet, uh, blueberries, the berries are the stuff that you basically can eat. You just have to be moderate about it. So blueberries, strawberries that you mentioned, those, those you can eat. Stuff like bananas, though, and apples, they have... Uh, a high amount of carbs in them. And, uh, and in the way of simple sugars. So you have to really be careful. Like I would not, bananas and apples are not part of my diet. 
I, I won't eat them. And then other things like even pineapple, which used to be a favorite of mine. Uh, the morning breakfast, the standard American breakfast is, is terribly problematic, right? Um, and I have, there are extended family members that I, I see do this every time that we're, we're, we get together, right? We're all in the same house for a couple of days. A big old bowl of oatmeal, way more oats than just one serving. Probably four servings of, of the oatmeal is in there. And then, you know, they cut up a banana in it, maybe yeah. some apples. They hit it with some brown sugar and milk. And, and those guys are um, basically, they're having a meal in itself that's well beyond 100 grams of carbs. It's probably 150, even as much as 200 grams. Yeah. Um, and um, it's really re super. Okay, so there's a, there's a really a big picture to this that, that I would ask you to um, think about. 52% uh, in fact, I think the, the percentage is a little bit more um, than that. And I don't want to get off track with this, but 52% of our population that's my age in their 60s is pre-diabetic or full-on type 2 di diabetic. And yeah. the way that we got here was by decades and decades of eating the standard, what we call the standard American diet that has anywhere from 55 to 65% carbohydrates in it and eating meals like the one that I just described. You know, the average person in the U.S. by the end of the day has eaten uh, usually north of 300 grams of carbohydrates. So they've ended up spiking their blood all day long. And really, and I haven't said this yet in, in our cast here, but the problem itself is, it is not the carbohydrate it's the insulin that's being expressed. Insulin is a master hormone. And when it's being expressed at high levels and chronically day in and day out for decades, the uh, hormonal dysregulation that it causes is what is driving the, epi the uh, uh, diabetes epidemic. So, so that brings me to another question. So we're not the same age. I'm 35, but I'm also pre-diabetic. I've been pre-diabetic for at least three years. I went to the doctor. I had my blood work done. I was trying to figure out how to, um, at that time I was training in MMA and I was trying to figure out how to build muscle and burn fat at the same time. What I noticed what was happening was that I was losing weight. I was losing muscle mass and I was losing fat at the same time, but I didn't have any muscle building definition happening. And so what I learned are a couple of things. I learned that my uh, 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 creatine levels were low, which was, uh, which is important in, uh, in building muscle because it helps hydrate the muscle. The other thing is I learned I was L-arginine uh, 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 deficient. And so I have to take L-arginine supplements. But the other thing I noticed or that I, I'm, I stumbled upon paying attention to my own body is that um, my hormone regulation is very off. So I have or I'm affected by seasonal affective disorder, which is the months that get um, colder and there's less sunlight my mood dramatically changes. Part of the reason I moved from New York to Arizona to like a high sun state is so that I could more or less take a be take better care of myself um, and just my mood. 
But what I also came across was after lunch, if I don't eat a certain amount of carbs, my, I would get sad. Like I would literally get sad and it doesn't matter what I was doing or what I was thinking about. My mood would just be off and I would start sometimes start like, uh, and this is out there, but sometimes I would start tearing up for no reason. And I know like, and then I started paying attention. I, I spoke to a nutritionist. She looked at my diet. And so how do you, how do you suggest someone like me starts focusing on diet where you're trying to build muscle, you're trying to fuel um, workouts, you're trying to fuel your day, but you're also trying to um, stabilize your mood because I feel like insulin has, and, and I do a very bad job. Like I have a sweet tooth, like you wouldn't believe. Um, and I can't tell if it's my body wanting the sweets, if it's a craving that somehow I'm just used to or addicted to, like I'm trying to figure out how to, how to manage it. And, and the thing about it is, Sometimes I'm scared. Sometimes I'm physically and I like I get nervous about dropping like not eating sweets because I'm wonder I, I wonder if um if it's gonna negatively affect me. You know what I mean? So so you said how old were you? I, you didn't I'm sixty-two. Sixty-two. And you got diagnosed with pre-diabetes when you two were two years ago. Two years ago. And you Six when I was sixty. And you hundred percent reversed that. Yeah, I just took my blood a few minutes ago because you caught me on a day. I, I made a new type of soup, and I wanted to know how, what the effect is on my blood glucose because I'm a health coach, and, you know, and what I do is help people do exactly what we're talking about, reversing these conditions. Right. And, um, you know, and my blood's pristine. You know, is it? Um, yeah. So, I start, so you mentioned oatmeal earlier, and, and a, a common thing is when you're weightlifting or you're bodybuilding to, to – start off the day with oatmeal and like I did exactly what you were talking about where um, you put milk and I would cut up half a banana and I'd sprinkle, I wouldn't put sugar um, because I feel like it's sweet enough and I would put peanut butter and, uh, and cinnamon in there. And that's generally how I would start my day because also I, I do notice the benefits of fiber, right? Like fi having a, you know, oats are great for fiber. Like they're a good source of it, I think. Right. Um, right. And, and so I feel like starting off the day makes me feel good. And then lunch I'll have like, but the, the other thing I've noticed is that I'll eat healthy for the first, most of the day. And at nighttime, just pile it on, just like go to town, like eat a pizza for dinner or a hamburger. And it's just my body for some reason, as stupid as it might sound saying, Hey, you can't finish this day without eating X amount of calories or like, being completely satiated. Right. I mean, wh wh where were you when you were diagnosed with prediabetes? Like where, what was your well, diet looking like? Again, you hit so many things, but where was I? I was 60 and, uh, and I was eating, uh, every morning I would make this massive fruit bowl for me and my wife. Uh, I would have a couple cups of coffee with half and half in it. And then like you, I was on the calorie hunt all day long. You know, I'm, I'm active, very active. I'm in, uh, I'm a fifth year CrossFit athlete. I'm also a CrossFit coach. Um, and I'm working out or moving every single day of the week and usually working out in high intensity training at least five days out of the week. Um, and I was a CrossFit athlete when I came up as pre-diabetic. Um, so like I was chasing calories all the time. 
Yeah, uh, same for me. I was I was training in mixed martial arts when I got diagnosed pre-diabetes. And I'm talking like I used to train sometimes two to three hours a, a day for like five or six days a week. Right. And so it's, you know, you want calories, but it's like finding the right calories. And then, sorry, go ahead. You go ahead. Well, I no. Just, um, so the, what I would say to you, there's, there's, there's a, a, a couple things here. Um, when we talk about healthy eating, for the last five decades, 50 years in this country, the United States, the people here and all around the world, because we have such an influence, has been told that eating healthy, you know, means a certain thing. They've got their food pyramid and at the bottom right. of the pyramid are all those carbohydrates. And so first off, one needs to step back and realize that most of that food pyramid and the rationale to do it was built on myths. That's number one, okay. right? If, if a person like you, for example, is interested in, uh, so you've said a couple things to me. Number one, pre-diabetic. Number two, you're, you're athletic. How are you going to manage the calories? So first thing is on the pre-diabetes is that uh, there's plenty of science now. It's unequivocal. Um, and, you know, you can, uh, when you look edit this later and you're looking at this, you can look up Verta Health, for example, uh, the nutrition network and you can see you can actually chase down references and see that i'm not like doing the woo woo thing right now um so the evidence is unequivocal that diabetes can be reversed in the ketogenic lifestyle with that said uh it's this is not like a pill you you can't switch to the ketogenic diet tomorrow and then have the benefits from it uh, immediately because your body is used to burning sugar. And uh, there is a serious level of gene regulation that plays into this. Um, the fat burning pathways are significantly downregulated and you, they don't get turned on overnight. The, the sugar part of this, the diabetic part that's just related to the blood sugar and the A1C those changes happen relatively fast, like within two months, especially if you're just pre-diabetic and you haven't drifted up, up the hill yet, um, you're going to see the reversal of that uh, platform in, in a few months if you're compliant with the lifestyle. Okay. Other changes take longer. So from the athletic point of view, in the first couple of months that I was doing CrossFit, when I started the ketogenic diet, in the first month alone, I felt like crap every time I went to work out. I mean, I'm sure doing the MMA, you would feel that way. You'd be like, God, I have no energy. And well, the reason that's going on is because you, in the early days of the diet, you've depleted your glycogen stores and they're not getting filled up back again because you're not, you're not doing the carbs anymore. Yeah. Um, and that, that, has a, that has a psycho, sorry to cut you off, but that has a really hard psychological toll because your body is telling you, hey, do this or you're not going to get the results that you want. And so you have, how do you, how do you mentally lock in? Because I feel like that's the hardest part for anyone who's trying to change their diet, right? Or, or eat differently. It's like getting over the psychological, the psychological fear of not doing 
or eating the way you've been eating for a long time. Um, and that's a, a really valid thing. Uh, there is a, a massive psychology to this. Um, but so let me just say this uh, before we get into the psychology thing, which we need to talk about. Right. Um, the, the physiological changes in terms of the exercise, they take a minimum of two to three months. All right. And, okay. and the reason that it takes that long is because your body actually has to like open up. You have to uh, open up all these genes that have been downregulated for decades. It takes a while, but once you're past, once you're well into what's called keto adaption with it, there's more and more evidence coming out now that those athletes are in much better situation physiologically than the carbohydrate burners. Um, uh, most of this data started in the eighties with endurance athletes and those guys are killing the uh, Ironmans and, and the marathons. And the reason that they are is because they don't have to rely on the gels and stuff. So think about this. Think about this for a minute, a carb burner like yourself, who's trying to exercise you, you have 2000 calories available to you in your glycogen and that's it. But in your body right now, you have anywhere from 20 to 40,000 calories in fat. But you can't access it because those pathways, even though you can do some fat burning, the difference between you and me is that even at maximal uh, velocity, maximal oxygen usage, in my case, I'm still fat burning up around 80% of the calories that are being used. A carb burner, on the other hand, as soon as they six, hit 60% maximal effort, they're done with the fat burning. You're completely relying on your glycogen. So that's number one. We have very different physiological platforms. I, I went, I'm going to come to the psychology thing in a second. Yeah. I just recently did uh, uh, level two training uh, over a CrossFit weekend. And we, we just had two days in a row that were just, uh, you know, being 62 years old and I'm, I'm doing these workouts next to these guys who are in their twenties and thirties. Right. Uh, yeah. That's big for me. You know, uh, my, my mobility and all, there's all kinds of things that go into it. But the one difference was, those guys were having to eat gels and energy bars all weekend long. I'm watching these guys with the sports drinks because we had so many things that we had to do that were high intensity and whatnot. I didn't have to eat anything because one of the advantages that I have over someone who's carbohydrate uh, dependent is that we being keto adapted are glucose sparing. Like we maintain glycogen stores over the long run in any given exercise to a much higher extent than carbohydrate burners do. And that's why these guys in the endurance realm, the uh, Ironmans and the marathons, that's why they're killing those sports because literally um, they, they don't have to worry about running out of that 2000, the 2000 calories. Even somebody who's got very little body fat on them has anywhere, they're, they're on the bottom end, they've got around 20,000 calories in fat. And because they're keto adapted, um, 
those fat burning pathways are completely upregulated. They're, 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 we're burning significantly more fat at over twice the rate of a carb person. Now, the, and right now the science is really at the cutting edge of this because the research was suppressed for a long time, um, a few decades. I don't, I don't want to get off track with that right now at this second, but the bottom line is that it looks like these improvements in f- physiology are, are actually starting to look like across the boards, whether you're the kind of individual that is, you know, in a weight room because you're trying to smash deadlift records or something like that. Right. Um, high intensity training and endurance look like there's, there are improvements all the way across the boards for somebody who's keto adapted. Getting at the other thing that you raised, the psychological aspect of what we've come to understand now is that carbohydrates, when you eat them, they light up the same part of your brain as drugs do and alcohol. It's the same part of the brain. I'm not arguing to you when I say that, that, you know, it's the same as taking a shot of heroin or something. It's not. But when you consider the fact that somebody who's, let's just come back to the reality, somebody who's pre-diabetic, like you just described, or like me two years ago, um, you've been eating high levels of carbohydrates for decades. And so when you have that input going into your brain in the same location for decades on end, uh, there are some in the keto uh, area of research that are actually using pretty strong words. They're like, this is carb addiction is what it is. There Mm -hmm. are others that that are more soft about it. They're like, okay, well, you're going to, you have food cravings problems and, uh, and you have habit problems. So you're used to eating a certain way. And when you have to change the paradigm and you start eating differently, it takes a while before you get new cravings for fat and things like that. Uh, fat and protein versus having the carb uh, cravings for the carbs. With that said, I work with seriously ill type two people. And I can tell you right now that the carb additions, the carb addiction issue is a really big deal. They yeah. have a hard time getting reversed because even though their heart's in it, quite often they cannot overcome, you know, the drive on any given day to not sit down and and hit their their favorite snack, whatever it used to be. In my case, it was dark chocolate that had a lot of sugar in it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know if you ever heard that guy. I forgot his name, but he did that fit to fat to fit program where he, he gained weight with his clients to prove that he could lose the weight. And then he realized something as a, as a, a health expert and a fitness expert is that the psychology portion of, uh, of going back to eating healthy is harder once you're already like overweight. So, so what was your, let's break it down simpler, right? What was your daily meals two years ago? And what was like your, your body fat percentage? Well, I don't know my actual body fat percentage. I can tell you that two years ago I was 168 pounds and now I'm 138. Oh, wow. And then what, what would you eat? What would you eat in the morning and well, lunch and, and two dinner? Two years time? ago, I, I would make these massive fruit balls for both my wife and I, and I would usually have three cups of coffee with half mm-hmm. and half in it. 
And then I would have some kind of mid-morning snack, like an energy bar, uh, Lara right. bars that have a lot of carbs in them. And then, and then I would have these massive lunches because, you know, I was like in the frame of mind, like, oh my God, I have to get through the whole afternoon. And so right. Right. I would bring all these leftovers and, you know, uh, and have this massive lunch. And then I would be starving. And this is the, this is the roller coaster of the high carbs, the high insulin disrupts the, um, the, uh, the satiation hormones and the hunger and all that. And I would get home at four 30 in the afternoon uh, or five somewhere in that range. Uh, and I would be starving. Um, and so I would set about making dinner for my family and I would have usually three beers in there, which uh, standard beers, which were usually around uh, a total of 48 grams of carbs for all three of them. That's even before I would have the dinner meal, which was massive. And right. as my wife is pointing out, we always, I always had a lot of potatoes and rice in these meals, you know, uh, a ton of it. Uh, well, at least she didn't point out the beer, right? She pointed out the rice. <laughs> <laughs> and then before bed, usually I would hit the dark chocolate. Yeah. See, I have a very similar thing going on for me. I'd wake up in the morning and, I, I, you know, sometimes I'd eat corned beef hash and eggs if I feel like I'm going to be hitting it hard at the gym or I'll do oatmeal with, like like I said, bananas. And then lunchtime, it's almost like a panic frenzy. Like yeah. I have to eat enough uh, carbs and meat to catch up for the past hour and then somehow um, eat something that's supposed to last me until like six or seven in the evening when I get home. And so you're, it's almost like panic eating, right? It's like, it's like the equivalent to like buying toilet paper for COVID. It doesn't make, there's no logic to it. You're just, you're doing it because you're freaking out. Yeah. And so, and so in the nighttime you have like the heaviest meal and it's an unhealthy meal. And like, even last night I got some stuff from work and it's like a uh, hundred grams covered in chocolate with sea salt. And there's no reason to eat half a bag, but um eight, nine o'clock at night, I'm, I'm completely just decimated, right? I'm sitting on right. my couch with a full stomach. And it's like, I don't know. I don't know why I do it. But I know it's wrong to do. But I'll do it again tomorrow. You know what I mean? And, and, and it feels like it feels like for some reason, no matter how hard you work out, you cannot catch up to the way you're eating or for me, like I can't, I can't overwork the calories or, or the way I'm eating, but also I can't escape the cravings for the food is what I'm, what I'm getting at. Well, what you're describing is actually perfectly normal. It is normal. And, uh, you know, I, I would raise the issue of shame with you not to be really careful here because you got to understand that it's the, it's the insulin expression that's causing the dysregulation in the hormones. And, because you are eating so many carbs every day, once the 2000 grams, or excuse me, 2000 calories of glycogen, once you've re replaced all the glycogen stores in, the ver in your muscle tissue, which happens to be the biggest issue here, and then everywhere else that needs replacement glycogen, you got, just got to realize the rest of those calories are going to go into ad adipocytes, or it's going to go into fat tissue. That's where it's yeah. going to go. And it's so interesting. Your body is really good at just storing it in the back, but it won't pull it back out. It'll say, no, give me more. You know what I mean? It won't and pull it out because the insulin is left too high. So the bottom line is if, if you shift to a well-formulated 
ketogenic diet. And I keep using the word well formulate because if you travel around on the internet, on the surface of it, there's just massive disinformation about how to do the ketogenic diet. If, if you're doing a good job with it, there are some negatives in the beginning, right? And that is getting keto adapted. You're not going to feel good exercising, at least for me and everyone's an individual. The first month was horrible. The second month was really erratic. Sometimes I would feel good. Other times I wouldn't. Once I surpassed four months though, uh, my, my workouts and the stuff that I do now, I, I don't even think about food and I don't need it. I never hit the wall. Um, you know, it's, uh, I have more energy all day long. Uh, and the fact that you're keeping the carbs down means you're keeping the insulin significantly lower. So things like diabetes are going to go away. Um, and you lose weight on the diet because you satiate. A lot of people misunderstand, and it, this is one of the things that happens eating a lot of carbs, is that you tend to eat until you literally feel your stomach stretching out. Right. And right. you're like, okay, yeah. I'm finally full. But on the ketogenic diet, what ends up happening is uh, because the insulin has been dropped, your hunger hormones are actually working right, and you satiate. You're like, wow, I've had enough to eat. I, I'm not hungry anymore. And I, you, you have this feeling that, you know, stop eating now. And right. Yeah. And then your body is taking the calories that you brought in and it's actually doing what we call in the field partitioning because the carbs are only pretty much used as fuel. I mean, there's a few other things that happen to them, but they're dominantly being used as fuel. But the protein and the fat they get partitioned. Uh, the fat is not all burned. A lot of it has to go into our membranes. Some of it is being converted into hormones. Uh, and then some of it is burned. A good part of it is burned. And when all that's said and done, your body goes, you know what? We need a few more calories. Where are they going to take it? You already used the word. It's going to take it off your back end. Right. You know, and, and I've been ketogenic now i said two years but it's one year and seven months and i went from 168 to 138 i had a 19% reduction wow. in weight and i'm weight stable and basically i eat all all i want i don't count calories what i pay attention to now is that if i'm hungry then i eat and i satiate right. It's like, okay, I don't need any more of this. It's like, I don't know how to explain this to you. It's not because I'm going, or on a conscious level, I don't need any more. My body's going, okay, you can stop eating now. Yeah, it's not like you've gotten to a point where you feel uncomfortable, and then you're like, oh, okay, that, that means I have to stop eating. Right. It's now you, you had two scoops or three mouthfuls, and you're like, I don't need any more right now. Right. Um, so then what do you eat now? What's your daily uh, meals look like or food in general? What does that look like versus well, before? With COVID, so COVID, and I, I mentioned to you, I was a teacher. So last March, uh, we all went home and we were doing online education. So that sort of changed how I do my diet now. So for me now, what I do is I usually have two or three cups of coffee in the morning. Uh, they're loaded with butter and salt and heavy cream. The uh, coffee? Yeah, 
I usually do three of them. They're called bullet coffees that I really enjoy the taste and everything like that. And I usually okay. do three of them. Uh, and then a few hours later, I have breakfast, which is anywhere from two to three eggs. And then usually uh, some type of protein. It could be bacon. It could be sausage. Uh, this morning, we, I had leftover uh, lamb sausage soup. And so I put my eggs down right on top of that. Uh, it was actually an omelet with cheese. And then I usually don't eat again. Or today I worked out really hard. So like I'll, I probably will have a snack after I'm done with this podcast. That's going to be like some cheese and some uh, hard salami. Not that okay. much of it. Like I said, till I satiate. And then at dinner, um, we're having a roast tonight. There'll be two two dark green types of vegetables like um, zucchini, um, perhaps asparagus with it. And then I make a massive salad for both me and my wife. It's got lots of leafy greens in it, other things put in there that are relatively low in carbs. And then a fatty dressing that I make myself. And that's basically my diet. Gotcha. Is it, is it, would you say it's, and this is a personal question. I feel like it's harder to plan meals that are gen, that generally revolve around uh, leafy greens and vegetables for a couple of reasons. One, storing them. See, and, and it's probably, I'm just lazy as a bachelor, but like storing them, they don't last very long in the fridge. So I feel like it's more of an active thing, like trying to eat healthier. Whereas like with carbs, you could boil rice and store it in your fridge for a couple of days. And at least, you know, you have a meal, right? And then you like throw in some, well, me personally, and then throw in some rotisserie chicken in there. So like, how do you, how do you, cause you said it takes a couple of months, right? How did you, how did you make that transition and what is like meal prepping, meal prepping, quote unquote, look like for you now? Like, so, I mean, that's a really good question. And uh, it, this is like I, I've said a few times, this is a, a paradigm shift. It's a change in, in how you, you live your life for sure. Um, and I have an advantage because I'm the shopper and cooker in this family. So you, you can store vegetables actually for, for quite a long time. And, okay. But I, basically, I shop about every other day, maybe every okay. three days. Uh, and then the other thing that I do is when I make dinner for my family, mainly my wife, my daughter uh, doesn't, you know, she's gone on in life or whatever. Um, but I'm, I always overmake whatever it is I'm making. And right. those, those are now leftovers that I can eat uh, whenever I want. And you, you can heat that stuff up. So I always overproduce that stuff goes into a little container, you know, goes in the refrigerator. And, um, and one of the wonderful things about cooking ketogenically is that everything you make has less carbs in it. And I got news for you. That stuff stores a lot longer in the refrigerator. It goes, it, it tends to, it does go bad, but it takes a lot longer. Right. Um, for that to happen. So like I always make more food than we we're going to eat at dinner time, And I do that deliberately because I want to make sure that there are leftovers. Leftovers, and, uh, yeah. See, I guess the, the, the hard thing for me, so I grew up in the Caribbean, right? And, and um, I would equate our diet closer to, for a reference point to um, the Hispanic diet. So like a lot of 
there would be this much, like 70% rice on the plate. And then a scoop of like beans and then a scoop of like meat. And then maybe a slice of cucumber, maybe a slice of avocado, maybe a slice of plantain on the side, right? And then I guess it's it's been a hard transition to not that's how we would make our plates. Like when we're we're dishing out food, it would be mostly the rice and then the other stuff on the side. And so now it's like um it's like having too many options now. So you don't know where to start, if that makes sense. You know, because you're you're looking at the plant and it's like, well, what do I do with this now if 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 the carb isn't the thing that I, the the foundation to build on you know what i mean does oh, that yeah. make sense for you absolutely makes sense because that's the way i used to uh cook as my wife has pointed out a massive pile of potatoes or rice was always on the plate so yeah there's you one has to learn a new way of looking at the plate and at the very beginning of this i mentioned the fact that because you reduce the carbs you've brought your calories down. So you have to learn to cook with fat and, and specifically using healthy fats. So, you know, we have a lot more fat in our meal now than we used to. Um, and we use, now there's space on the plate that's being, that has increased for, you know, good vegetables. The one, and when I say good, I mean the ones that have low carbs in them, like not potatoes and things like that. Not. So when, when you eat vegetables outside of like broccoli and greens, is sweet potato part of your diet or is that a really high carb um, um, veg? It, it's pretty high carb. It's got uh, complex carbs in it. And, and I have tried it um, nowadays where I test my blood. Uh, but for someone like, for a diabetic, you have to be really careful about it because what's going to happen is it's going to elevate your blood glucose and it's going to do it for a while, several hours someone who's serious about going on to this lifestyle because they want to reverse diabetes. What I recommend to my clients is that number one, we got to get you uh, keto adapted. So, you know, if they're compliant with the diet, that's going to happen in two to three months. And then at, after that point, they can start playing around with this. Once we've stabilized their blood sugars in that, what's, what it's going to boil down to is how much. How much of that sweet potato can you eat? And there are ways to figure it out. I, I teach my people how to do this. You, um, you have the capability to test your blood specifically and look, look at the blood glucose and the ketones, which I just did on a meal that, that I tried, which was new. Like we, I made this particular type of soup last night for dinner. I'm like, I wonder what the outcome of this is going to be. Mm. So today, so you're still, you're still doing a trial and error, even though you, you've entered in, into the, so there's a couple of key things you, you spoke about. You talked about being keto adaptive, which, is, which generally lasts like two to three months. So that's generally the two to three month period that you would have to commit to, to somewhat be uncomfortable, if that makes sense, or if that's all right. Well, only uncomfortable in certain ways. Like you're an MMA person, so you're in a slightly different situation than someone. I don't do that anymore, but I do weightlift. Okay. So yeah. you, you probably will feel crappy the first month of weightlifting, you know, and what I recommend to my clients is like figure out something else to do for a while the first month. I mean, if you're going to go in the gym, just understand if you're going to be lifting heavy weights that you might not feel very good. 
Okay, and, but that is not going to last, but it's a matter of being patient about it. Um, okay. Yeah. And then, and then, and, and I cut you off, I'm sorry, but then after the three month period where now you would say you're comfortably living a keto lifestyle, so your, your, your body is somewhat regulated to it. So, so you, when you say play around with different things, what do you mean by that? Well, as far as a diet is concerned, I, I advocate for uh, just direct testing. Uh, and a lot of, uh, a lot of clients don't want to do that. What I mean by direct testing is I finger stick and I look at my blood glucose. So if I'm going to try something new and the reason that I could tell you what I know about the sweet potatoes, cause I've done it right. I, I, I cut a square. I made some of this for my wife. I ate it. I had tested my blood glucose before the meal. And then I, I tested it along with the ketones uh, after the meal at one hour and then two hour to see what the effect was and eating a square of it. I don't know how big it was. Um, uh, not, not large. Um, right. You know, I could see the effect on me and I know if I want to, that I could have a small amount of that every once in a while. The, the thing, the thing that you've got to realize with, so this is the most effective way really in my view to do this after you've keto adapted. There are other people that, you know, you can get an app for everything these days. And a lot of people will get, uh, you know, one of these calorie counting apps and, um, and they will enter in the, they will look at their food labels or they'll look online. Okay. A sweet potato is this many uh, grams of carbs. And then at lunchtime, whatever they're going to do, I can eat three French fries because that's only this many grams. Um, I don't advocate for that because the, the people that I'm working with who are trying to reverse diabetes, they get into trouble with that every single time they go down that road. Yeah. And I used to do it when I used to train MMA and it's, it's, it's not a realistic way to manage your diet because after every meal, I got to like plug it. It takes like 20 minutes. Nobody has time for that realistically. No, they don't have the time move. for it. Um, and the other thing they don't realize, just to finish before you ask. The, uh, the yeah, sorry. Question, go ahead. No, no, you're good. Uh, I have a tendency to go on. I know that. Um, is that the, the food labels are not that accurate. You know, some right. the food label and they go, it says there's only two grams of carbs in here. Well, that's probably plus or minus. Right. You know, two grams. Uh, right. You just, so... And that's how come they get into trouble. At the end of the day, they're like, they've exceeded 50 grams by quite a bit. Their blood glucose is still dysregulated. Um, and so really the best way to do it, once you're keto adapted, you've been very compliant for those two or three months, is to start saying, okay, I, I want to try eating a little bit of this. I'm not going to go overboard. Maybe it's the dark chocolate. I don't know. So you get a, one little square of it. Yeah, you test your blood before and then you do it after and you're going to know whether you can eat that or not because if you can't man the blood glucose is going to be way up there and your ketones are going to be way down it's like okay that's a no because the thing is if you're diabetic which you're saying that you are right now um you're carbohydrate intolerant the the level of intolerance that's individual but yeah. for, for those of us that are in this category we have to be really careful Part of it is the, the, the fear, right? Like the, 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 I love cake. I'll just flat out say it. I love cake. And so, and so the thought is, well, I can't have sugar or carbs because that's not a keto diet friendly thing. 
And so I'll never be able to eat cake for the rest of my life. And I'm just not emotionally prepared for that. You know what I mean? Like, I just don't want to go through life never eating another slice of lemon cake. And, and what it sounds like is like, you don't have to do that. Like you could probably have it once a year maybe, or once every couple of months. It's just, you have to be more responsible more of the time than not. And I think that's maybe how you get over like, cause we never touched on the psychology aspect of it. Like, how do you, how do you mentally deal with the transition of? Well, in the beginning, I, I, as you're talking about, I had food cravings. I mean, I wanted my dark, dark chocolate. And um, I, I think for in my case, the fear aspect uh, really, I think, well, I've done a lot of things in my life that have required a lot of willpower. And both my daughter and my wife tell me that I'm unique because I could just made the decision to do it and I was fine. But I did have food cravings uh, and they had to be overcome. But, you know, one solace is that once you're keto adapted, you tend to develop cravings for literally fat. Like I crave coconut oil now. I love mm -hmm. how it tastes. Um, usually after dinner now, I, it's my go-to right away. I'm like, I want a couple tablespoons of it. Um, and I have that every single night. Uh, one thing I would say is if you're dying for cake, there are other ways to make it. I mean, you're right. I think if you have the attitude that, okay, I'm, I, I realize I cannot eat this several times a week. I need to like make it a once in a while thing. But also be aware that you can make the cake using almond flour. Um, the frosting can be done using um, a sugar alcohol, like um, what's the one I'm trying to think of um, right now? Like monk, monk, monk sugar, they call it. Okay. Uh, you could go down that route and, um, and vastly Im improve the low impact on your system that it's going to have. It's still going to have an impact, but it's going to be significantly less than buying a cake at Fry's that's right loaded up with sugar with sugar everything is sugar in there yeah yeah so um i one thing i do in a podcast is like i get i do tend to get really personal so stop me but you had mentioned um you had to have willpower to do stop some things before what was it if you don't mind me asking well i i was a rock climber and a mountaineer for well i'm actually back at it now uh okay. and cave diver um in more recent oh wow yeah. You know, and in climbing, I, I've been around the block with it. Uh, I was an Exum guide in Jackson Hole, Wyoming for six years. Uh, you know, I, I, what were been, you, I'm sorry, what was that? Uh, Exum mountain guides in Jackson Hole. Okay. Yeah. It's E X U M. Um, and it, like I said, a climber, uh, for almost, well now I'm back at it. So it's been longer than 40 years actually. And, um, and I've been in a lot of situations in that realm, not, not just a few, a lot where my risk, my life was risked to the extreme. And I've learned, you know, I think one of the lessons I got from that is that when I need to power through something, I pretty you much can. power through it. Gotcha. Um, and I think I learned a lot from that, you know, and I'm going to just tell you right now, the whole diabetes thing scared the living hell out of me. And, the, and I think one of the central reasons why it scared me so badly, and I did this, I, I, I looked at the medical literature. I spent a couple months completely immersed in it. 
And I'm here to tell you that if you follow their, their methodology, their management, you know, where you're going to end up with is in the complications. You're going to have kidney disease and or the cardiovascular disease and or one of the other things or many of them. And, you know, the thing is, when you're 35, you don't think about that kind of stuff, right? Because you're still young, you can, you can pretty much power through anything that comes along your way. And, you know, I remember when I was that age, I wasn't so worried about anything, right? But now I'm 62. And I'm looking at this. It's only going to be 10 years until I'm 72. And 20 years puts me in my 80s. Do I want to spend it with my feet cut off? You know, right. I have a daughter who's probably going to be getting married and having kids. And I would like to take those kids climbing and be able to do things like that. And I think the thing that terrified me the most about the diabetes is I had no idea. It's not like when you have that uh, spoonful of cake and swallow it, that there's a sudden piercing pain in your chest where you go, oh, my right. God, what I just did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's I got killing you. me, you know. You we're, feel good. You eat and you feel good. You're like, yeah. oh, this is great. You know what I mean? We're we're in we're in the rock climbing days. I'm looking up this face and I, and literally this happened to me one time. You know, there's a train load of really massive rocks coming at you right this second, right? You mean falling? Like, yeah, towards? Fall, a whole quarter of this wall fell just. just randomly fell and I was standing at the base of this thing along with a client and there was nowhere for us to go and this happened in a split second and you know I'm looking up at this thing you know and it's like there's no possibility of survival here of course I'm sitting here talking to you right now so I did survive what goes through your mind when you when you (laughs) do you ever think hey maybe I should have had that chocolate (laughs) (laughs) well in things that are like that, when they happen, uh, the the adrenaline response, I think the only thing that I did was I reacted at the time. I grabbed my client by the scruff of her shirt. And it's actually kind of a funny story because this the, the place at the base of this climb was in such an extreme location. Uh, there, we were literally standing on a trail at the top of another cliff that was 300 feet tall. And my client had to go to the bathroom. And I just before this happened, I gave her a choice. I said, well, there's nowhere for you to go that has any privacy. You can either, uh, I can either turn my back and face up the wall, which is the reason that I saw the rock. Saw it coming. Wow. Saw it coming. And, uh, and you can just squat right here or you can wait. We have to go down and around. I said, it'll probably take 10 minutes before we're down where you can comfortably, you know, get behind a rock or something. And she's like, I don't mind squatting. So I turned and face up the wall. And then this happened. And she had her shorts down around her ankles. And and I literally, I didn't even look. I just reached around and I grabbed her by the scruff of her uh, neck, the shirt that she had on. And as this stuff started to impact all around us, I literally was jumping this way and that way. And I don't know how we managed to get missed by all so of So you it. basically were, you were looking up at Falling Rock and just trying to skip it like in a cartoon is what you're saying. That's like basically hopping that, around. It, it all hit the slope right in front of us and then came right at us. It hit the tree right behind us. This, uh, you know, I, I don't, I could go on about this, but it was a massive thing. 
that people could see all the way on the other side of Jenny Lake and down at the, the there's, you know, where you get off of the boats to walk up where we were. People, people stopped what they were doing and they looked up the hill because this was a massive rock fall. This massive dust cloud came up out of it. Wow. And um, when it was all said and done, I was standing there hanging on to her still. <laughs> she wow. stood up with her pants still down around her ankles and we just looked at each other and then we started laughing. I mean, what else do you do? Neither one of us thought we should have lived through that experience. So we packed up and went down and uh, after that, but, but anyway, you know, it, diabetes yeah. is not like this at all. It's like an assassin that's sneaking around in your body and you have no idea it's even there. I mean, yeah, I think I'm, I'm I, maybe I'm a little more aware of it because it runs in my family. I mean, all my grandparents, three or four of my grandparents died from it. My fourth grandmother, who's alive still, um, she, she doesn't eat a lot of sweets or carbs. She doesn't eat much of anything. But then my aunts all have it. And then my cousins who are my age have it, like type two, and they already injecting. And I'm like, I got to I got to do something. And that's probably why I'm so physical is because I love being outdoors and I can, I go to South mountain all the time and I go to the gym. And so um, I'm on my feet and I'm moving around, but, it, but the part that I can't figure out is the, the food portion of it, which is probably the most important part of it. But um, I guess I'll have to look into, to, to, when you shop for the food, what are you buying? Are you buying like, um, meats and and just dark green vegetables or I mean well we have a we, what does it we, look like we have a a short guide which you know after after we're done I think I have your email I, I'll I'm glad I will gladly send you that but basically uh okay so the, here's the store thing but before I say that all you need to do is lower your carbs that's what you're going to need to do right first thing you, you yeah. can actually fix your situation now when you go into a store basically the rule of thumb is you stay out of the aisles right. just about anything that's in the aisles is going to have sugar in it uh, and and or um, bad oils and we haven't even talked about the oils but polyunsaturates are, are actually part of this problem but in any case you stay you stay in the periphery right so you know yeah you go to the vegetables a lot of dark green things there's things that aren't dark dark green that are okay like um cauliflower is really good for example and most of the green vegetables are awesome like we a lot of okra asparagus mm. uh you know broccoli um uh and then the, the meats, again, on the meats, and when you look at the popular literature, uh, quite often people are going to say, oh, a keto diet, you're going to die. It's too much protein. But truth of the matter is, is that we're eating the same amount of protein that they eat in the standard American diet. Uh, my wife's burning to say something here, but hang on one okay. second. Okay, yeah. Um, in your case, since you're so athletic, you, you may have to increase the amount of protein that you're eating in order to take care of your athletic business. And, and I will acknowledge to you that I eat a little bit more protein that's act, than actually what a, a person of my weight would normally be eating in the keto diet. But that's because I'm doing these crazy workouts all the time. And you raise the issue of wanting to be able to build muscle mass. I'm building it. You know, I'm, my physique is amazing at this point. Um, so 
when you shop, yeah, it's the protein um, and then the, the vegetables, uh, the dairy. Dairy is, unless you have a problem eating dairy, the, um, the heavy cream, the eggs, the butter, um, things like that are all part of it. All right. So there's the, the, the dairy I'm still confused about because I can't bait you. I do want to get to what's popular, like the popular, you said the, the, the normal literature on that. And I'll ask you that question after. So there's conflicting things when it comes to dairy. There's um, your body's not adapted to consume milk and cheese and whatnot, which is why so many people are um, um, intolerant of dairy. And then, and then there's the flip side that it's good for you. And the other question that I, I really want you to answer is, why has the American diet and even the quote-unquote healthy alternatives, um, why is that so wrong? Or why is that, why is the, the, the what's not right so popular? I guess it's, it's, it's the question I want to ask. Um, do you mind my wife wanted to jump no, in? No, absolutely, uh, jump in. Two things. Say that one of the things he doesn't explain is that what he makes when he makes okra, for example, I mean, it may sound like vegetables are boring, but I don't miss rice and potatoes because we are getting amazing. How do you cook it? He cooks it with a lot of oil and salt and pepper, and he like broils it, and it's, it's like broiled. eating really yeah. good crunchy potato mm. chips or something. I mean, it's like mm. we make up for all those things that you probably miss with way how he cooks everything that we eat it's uh, so you're saying how he cooks it so yeah because yeah. certain fried foods have like that crispiness and that texture that you're yes. you're looking for so you're saying how you prepare things like okra has a lot to do with it right that makes yeah. a lot of that makes a lot of sense right that does make a lot of sense i i have reduced my carbs by a lot and now that i've been eating so much the way he cooks fortunately i'm so lucky to have him cooking because i don't love to cook <laughs> I don't really miss the sugar. I realize now that I am not craving it anymore. I do have it now and then. And I love those peanut butter cups or almond filled cups. You know, they're chocolate. And they're so good. Yeah, that's yeah. my dessert, you know, but just one. And that's all I need. Got you. Got you. That is a, that's a really good point. I'm glad she interjected there. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so you, you mentioned this a, a couple of times since we've been talking. Also, I am good to talk for as long as you want. So if you need to stop, you got to stop me. But the other question is, why is it that the literature is so bad? Why is it that even going or eating in a healthy way, why is that so you, – you, do you understand the, the I, question? I totally understand the question. <laughs> it's, that, that could be a whole podcast uh, literally on its own merit. I mean, so first – you asked about the dairy, so let's just deal with that quickly. Right, right. Um, the, the quality scientific literature that deals with this issue of whether it's healthy or not um, it is really like it's pretty split. All right. And one of the things that is well understood in terms of human evolution is we've been dealing with dairy products for a really, really long time. Um, so uh, the, the big thing about it is, is that when I talk about eating dairy, I'm talking about drinking or eating things like heavy cream. So the, the, the sugar and the stuff like that, that normally comes in regular milk is not there because basically you're, we're eating just fat is basically when, so when I talk about dairy or the butter, um, 
in terms of the whole uh, American diet thing, what, what people don't understand, there's two, two parts to this. The, the vast majority of the literature that led to the food pyramid, which I talked about a little bit earlier, the, the vast majority of those studies, if not all of them, the, by the standard medical um, establishment, has been based on what's called associational research, where you look at somebody who uh, uh, died of a heart attack, all right, and you, when you analyze their blood, you see that, that there's cholesterol in all of the plaques that plug their arteries. So you go, okay, this guy is dead. He died of a heart, uh, heart attack. And when we take a sample of the plaque that, you know, plugged up the arteries that killed the heart, we see there's cholesterol in here. So cholesterol must have caused the heart, heart attack. Mm, mm, and interesting. that's a problem because people normally form plaques and cholesterol are in those plaques. Does it mean that the, that the cholesterol has a causal effect on the heart attack? And now we actually have quality, quality data that's not, associate, that's not an association. Just using this as the example that, that definitively shows that cholesterol is not a causal factor for heart failure or okay. a heart attack. But most of the American population, if you were to ask them about cholesterol, they're going to go, no, you shouldn't eat that because it causes heart disease. Yeah. Well, actually, it doesn't. So what happened in is in 1977, there, there was a government panel that was put together to come up with a nutritional plan for the American public. And you had the involvement of not only politics and like, I don't need to tell you about how, regardless of what your politics are, I don't right. need to tell you how difficult things have been in the United States lately, right? So yeah. you, you imagine this panel of, of uh, senators uh, who are, um, discussing what the nutritional benefits to the American population, what, which ones should be stipulated in a time period where there was a, a lot of bipartisanship and whatnot, all this stuff going on on this committee. And then you throw into that, into the mix, uh, the lobbyists of the food corporations, right, who are trying to right. sell right. these pre-prepared foods to the American public. If you think about what was going on in the 50s, right, with, the, with basically the escalation or the, the, gro the growth of the, the, middle, the middle class and being able to go buy frozen dinners and things like that from the store and this massive population now that could afford that. So you, you had the interplay of the food corporations along with this really messy pol political situation and the the, the scientists that tried to interject into that, the sense, here's what we actually have the data for, and this is what it's saying, and you guys need to maybe step back from telling the American public to eat this low-fat low uh, low diet that has high car carbohydrates in it, because you actually don't know what the effect of that's going to be. Yeah, that became it's, it's so interesting that politics has a lot to do with it because um, I, I mean, on this, on the podcast forum, I make fun of both sides, to be honest with you. I, I really do. Um, but it's interesting that, and it, it, it's really popular now that the country is so split where 
People use their feelings and biases to influence the data versus the other way around. Yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's ridiculous, but I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, so now how do we fix that? How do we, how do we? Well, there's, there's people like, um, okay, so you've got really the way I think about it is, is that there's a whole bunch of us now that are becoming activists. And that started with this company called Verta Health, who was um, a small group of people got together. One, one of the founders was Sammy Inkinen, who who's like yourself and me, highly athletic. The guy got in a boat with his wife and rode from California to, I think it was Hawaii or some, some deal like that. Um, he's one of these guys, right? And he was doing Ironmans and whatnot. And he went, like me, went to the doctor to just have a regular checkup and came up being pre-diabetic. And he's like, the hell's going on here? Right. right? Yeah. So then he got on to Steve Finney's work out of the 80s. And he's like, okay. So he tries the ketogenic diet on his own and reverses his condition. So he came together. And then we have uh, into this company that has really started to impact the United States with type 2 diabetes reversal. And then you had this Tim Noakes in South Africa, which about the same time, and he was a really famous uh, marathon runner who um, same situation, went to the doctor to have, uh, have a checkup and discovered that he wasn't pre-diabetic. He was full on type two. Wow. And uh, he's like, what's going on? I've, you know, this is one of these guys who actually was significantly responsible for the whole concept of carbo loading. And he came out yeah. and published this paper and said, dudes, I was wrong. I should mm. never have done this. Right. And the reason that I was wrong is because I didn't bother to look at the 40,000, 20 to 40,000 calories of fat that all of these runners were carrying. And so he got into it. And now there's this nutrition network who I'm, I'm tied with really uh, closely. And really our, um, our mission is to try and find as many people like me and other health coaches and uh, doctors and whoever we can to, to actually learn the story about this and then go out and do what we're doing. We try to educate people, right. um, you know, uh, along with reversing diabetes in our clients. So they're going to go out and say, look, you don't have to go down the road of the injections, the management, the other medications, uh, the kidney failure that's waiting for you down the road, along with cardiovascular uh, disease tends to kill more type twos, I think, than the kidney stuff. You don't have to go that route. There is, there is another way to go. And yeah, there, there are impediments to it. Like, and we've been talking about it. You've got to like change your uh, eating. I call it a lifestyle because it's like, you know, we were discussing it. Well, yeah, well, you're going to have to start to learn to cook whole food and Right. And then planning your day out a little differently, making sure you've got all these things in the refrigerator you can take to work the next day. And right. actually that liberates you. You go to work, you just got to throw something in a microwave and you're eating it, you know, five minutes later and it's really healthy food and you're no longer having, you're no longer hitting the wall. You're no longer thinking about a meal anymore. Like, oh my God, there is not enough stuff on this plate. Right, 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 right. Yeah. The ketogenic revolution, right? Where, what's the program? What is it? Um, and, and just break, break down how you plan on, on educating people. Like, well, so we have three 
I, well, okay, I guess two parts to this that's right behind me, actually, because we're new, we're relatively new. We started out, you know, uh, conceptualizing this a year ago, but we've been actively really hammering with clients now for about six months. And then we have a presence on the, on the internet. We're trying to build, that's the educational component of this. So it's running my own YouTube channel, uh, webinars, and then I'm tightly associated with nutrition networks. So I do webinars with them. We also um, produced um, basically to break it down, how to do the keto lifestyle, uh, an online course that's available uh, through their network. Um, and, and so yeah, I'm actively working with clients. Uh, we, I, we actually don't have any in Phoenix. The remarkable thing about technology is that our clients are out of the state and out of the country. And, you know, I'm working with wow. a woman right now in Australia. Um, we use, we leverage the heck out of technology to work with these people. So we utilize a, a biomarker app where they enter and, and for the type two diabetics and the cardiovascular guys, it's really crucial that they, every day they've entered their weight, their blood, their blood pressure, their blood glucose and their ketones. And then I monitor the, those inputs uh, every day on the back end. And then I'm communicating with the guys who are actually really ill um, two to four times a day. And we use Marco Polo for that. It's almost instantaneous. They actually prefer it to setting up a Zoom meeting because we don't both have to be in the same place or different places, but at the same together time. at the same time. Right. And so usually two to four times Marco Poloing and then when something comes up, they really need help with, we do like exclusive media for them. So I oftentimes will like create a, a, a video for them um, and then give them the private link to it so that they can see this presentation that's anywhere from 20 to 40 minutes, something like that. I see. Um, and then we have this, you know, like I was saying, the YouTube. Um, so it's more, it's more, uh, it's more, um, uh, uh, Personalized plan sounds like like it's more uh, attuned to each client, so everyone exactly because everyone's okay. different and right yeah they have different somewhat different needs, practical issues. One one of my clients is traveling almost all the time, and eating keto traveling is trickier than if you've got to make the food yourself at home. You know, I bet I bet you know, and and the other thing I often wonder is I I, I I'm curious about everything. And I wonder, like, you know, somebody who might be a 200-pound man versus 150-pound woman, you know, diff different people might th – those two people might eat a banana, and then what is that going to do to their blood sugar level? You know, it, like, it, it, it might be different. Like, it's the same banana, but it might affect two different people differently. You know what I mean? Like, Absolutely. it might take – one person a longer time to burn off. And I'm all guessing, right? This is all guesswork, but I'm No, you're I'm not guessing. Because uh, I told you, and this is pretty much true, that half the country is going to be, they're going to pop up pre-diabetic or diabetic by the time they get to my age. And what that means is about half the country and half the world, actually, we, we track uh, pretty much equivalently to, ch to po the population in China and India um, with this. And then the other first world countries are, are not that far behind us, but basically about 50%. It's, it runs in my view, a little bit higher than that. And we are carbo, we are carb intolerant. And so for us eating that banana 
is a bad idea. It's really? going to spike our blood sugar very high. And because of that, we're going to get a high insulin spike, which is going to cause you to want to be eating about an hour later. Because when the insulin crashes, you're, the, the hunger hormones are going to go boom like that. And you're going to be like, I got to eat something. And I got to eat something right now. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's, it's almost like an exponential problem, right? Where you, you eat something that's high carb. And then when you're at that peak, you got to eat something else. So it just keeps like steadily going. Yeah. It's a roller coaster. Yeah. And it just goes up long term. But you had mentioned some other things that I wanted to ask about. One is testing your ketones. I didn't know you could do that on a daily basis. Is that they have home kits for that now? Like you, so I have the blood sugar strips where you prick your finger, put the blood on the. Um, on yeah, the there's lots of meters. This is the keto moho and it, it measures both blood glucose and it does ketones. In one, is it two in one? It's, it's two in one. I mean, you have two different strips, but you, you, I get the same, I get the both measurements off of one little drip of blood. Wow. Okay. Um, I didn't, I didn't even know you could do that. I always thought you had to get to test your ketones. You have to like go to a doctor and, and have it done that way. No, um, you don't. You can finger stick for it. And the, the whole purpose of it is that in order to get keto adapted, um, you need to be in ketosis, meaning that once you've lowered the carbs enough, which means you've lowered uh, the insulin, now the fat burning pathways are going to be upregulated. Um, not so much in the beginning, right? It takes a little bit of time, but then, then they're going to be roaring. And you can tell when they're activated because you're going to be burning fat and the byproducts are going to be, and I've stuck to keeping it simple, but the byproducts are gonna be the beta hydroxybutyrate, which is BHB, another molecule called acetoacetate, yeah. and then also some acetone. Okay. So we can measure the, B, the BHB really easily on the meter, and that's how I know that I'm not eating enough, or that's how I know that I've kept eating the carbs low, because I will be maintaining my ketones at a reasonable level, which should be between uh, 0.5 and 5 all day long. Like just before mm. our podcast, I was at 2.6 millimolar on my BHB. Gosh, I'll have to get one of those. And the other thing that I wanted to ask you is you are, uh, I mean, there's a lot of questions, <laughs> but the, you said you, you work with a client in, in Australia, which had me thinking about time differences. And I wanted to know what your thoughts were on, uh, on uh, time restricted eating, and the other word, the other term for it is uh, is um, uh, what is fasting? it? Intermittent fasting. Have you done that? And can you do both at the same time? Or have you tried it? Do you believe in it? Like, what's our thoughts on that? Okay, so first, first the time restricted issue. Um, that's that's a very real thing because humans we operate on a, with a circadian rhythm, just like all things in nature do. Right. Up from an evolutionary point of view, we uh, ran our particular day based on the light, right? We went right. to bed and we slept in the dark. And then in the morning when the light came on, we got up. So it does matter when you eat. And most of the American public, most of the world public, actually, they eat way late into the evening. Like, I don't know if you've, you probably have traveled to Europe, but I, I've spent I've traveled there quite a bit, you know, and in I've never been to Europe. No, sorry. Okay. 
Well, in Spain, you're eating in the middle of the freaking night. You know what I mean? But so what I try to do, and this makes a difference because here's the thing. If you're eating that chocolate bar with sugar in it at nine o'clock at night, you've just spiked the heck out of your insulin. And that, that uh, rise in insulin causes dysregulation of the very hormones that are going to put you to sleep in the correct way. You've, okay. you've actually caused cortisol to be raised and the melatonin concentration is going to be messed up. That's going to have an effect on your sleep pattern when you finally do go to sleep that night. And, um, and that's going to affect the insulin expression and the cortisol expression that happen later as you approach the morning hour. So like, uh, it's really important to finish the evening meal so that at minimum there's three hours between the time when you finish eating and when you actually go to bed. And I try to have our family meal done by six o'clock in the evening so that there's plenty of time between that, not that hour and when we're going to go to bed, that's time restricted. Now, so you, you do do the time restricted eating is what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. Not, not to an extreme. And this is bringing me to the second point. I mean, you can get more extreme about it. There are some people that like they, when they try to couple this with the ketogenic diet, what they'll do is they'll be like, all right, I'm not going to have any food until noon. And right. then I'm going to have my evening meal and be done with it by whatever, six o'clock, right? They're really that careful about it. I just try to have my evening meal done by six, right? That's what's working for me. That's now, your baseline. Yeah, yeah. on the intermittent fasting, um, I, first off, you really need to know what you're doing about that. And again, like, laying off of the popular blogs and literature out there is highly recommended. I, I would read, if I was going to do intermittent fasting at a really high level, I would read Jason Fung's book, Jason, Jason. Fung. Okay. He's the expert in this area. Um, but one thing that I do believe in is that if you're going to do intermittent fasting, you should be already be keto adapted. That's really, really um, smart because if you okay. want to get the true benefits from it, you need to be keto adapted. Uh, the benefits you're going to get from trying to do this as a normal carb eater are, you're, I think you're just going to put yourself through misery. You probably are going to lose some weight and whatnot, but, but, and the reason why being keto adapted is important is because you are going to be fasting normally by virtue of the fact that you're ketogenic and keto adapted. Like I only have two meals a day. Oh, Is that really? because I wake up in the morning and go, okay, well, I'm, I got to make sure that I only eat twice today. Like I need to write this down and I need to like fight through not having a third meal. No, it's because I am not hungry. Right. Mm. I, I have uh um, I usually will have what some people, I guess, would call breakfast some, somewhere around 11 a.m. And I don't eat again until the evening meal, which we're done at, at 6. It's just two meals a day. Um, and so you already are doing what I would call a normal fasting situation um, with that. And when you're in, in between those meals, your ketones are going to rise up. 
and your blood glucose is going to be, it's going to be down. It's not going to be terribly low. I mean, that's the thing about the ketogenic diet. You're going to be usually within the normal range on your blood sugar. Um, when, when you're in the fasted state. Okay. So it, it is fa intermittent fasting is used by a lot of people. When you sit down at a round table where all of the experts are there on intermittent fasting people that I would trust with, because they've done the science they either like in the case of Fung, he's got thousands of patients. He's done this through type two diabetics that are trying to reverse that situation. Um, that they all agree, get keto adapted, and then you can start applying that to, to in, into your lifestyle. That seems counterproductive just uh, as an assumption because it feels like trying to manage the time to eat would probably be easier than lowering the carbs. Um, just, just if I had to think of the feeling I get trying to choose one, it seems like trying to eat between a certain amount of time would be easier to, to manage and control versus you. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. That's just, but that's purely out of assumption. Like, I don't know. I'm just saying from like a, a, a psychological standpoint, you know what I mean? Because I think a lot of it is mental, right? Most of it is choosing to do the right thing. Like how do you, you know, you have to set the bar low enough that you can attain it. Right. right. I feel like that's important. <laughs> Um, and so, so, which brings the question is how did you really feel when you, because there obviously you weren't doing keto before when you were pre-diabetic, what right. was the, what was the, what was the feeling of transitioning? What was some of the challenges you, you faced mentally when you, when you started, like, um, you know, when you got your cravings, because obviously you would get cravings, right? So then well, how did... What I did, like, uh, and I was still teaching then, or actually in a teaching building. Where what you were you teaching, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, chemistry. Chemistry, okay. Yeah. yeah. So what I did was I just made sure that when I got hungry, that I ate something that was low carb, like cheese, um, sausage, smoked salmon, stuff like that. I see. So you, you, you're still eating what you're eating, just uh, anything but carbs. Okay. All yeah. Right. Just stayed away from eating anything like, especially in the break rooms and stuff like that, where all the potato chips are and yeah. cupcakes and Lord knows what else is in there. Right. Right. So I just would bring uh, fatty protein snacks to work. And that's what I did. And the thing is, as you get keto adapted, there's less and less of that. What I mean by that is that I, I would no longer get uh, hungry mid-morning. When mm -hmm. I would get hungry, it was closer to 11 or 12. And then I would eat the leftovers that I'd already you know, brought to work that I'd made the night before. Um, but there are other things that I know about that I counsel my clients on that I got into trouble with. One, one of the things that uh, and you'll see this in the popular uh, literature a lot. They talk about the carbo flu, the keto flu, and that has more to do with, with uh, electrolyte imbalances because when you're on a diet that's high in carbohydrates, your kidneys store salt and water, all right? 
um, because the insulin is generating that pressure. The insulin, uh, the high, high levels of insulin cause the kidneys to store water and salt. So when okay. you shift to the keto diet and you bring, you bring the uh, carbs down, now the insulin pressure is no longer on the, ke on the ke kidneys and you're going to start secreting water and salt. And what will happen within the first two or three days of shifting to the diet if you're not eating salt is that you'll just literally, it comes on suddenly, all of a sudden you're slightly dizzy, you feel like you couldn't take another step in this world if, even if your life depended on it. There, there may be some nausea and it, it took me uh, a little bit of research uh, in the literature to find out that I just didn't have enough salt. And, um, and now I teach my clients, okay, first learn the diet, then when you start it, we now know, and I teach them that they need to be eating about 12 to 13 grams of table salt a day, distributed mm. between drinks and gotcha. put on their food. Uh, and if you're doing that, then you don't run into those problems at all. It's smooth coasting all the way through. Really? So a lot of it is electrolytes to, to help get over that. Yeah, because your body's, a lot of profound changes are going to happen in your body. And one of them is in the kidneys. Gotcha. Is there anything else you wanted to touch on um, before? Because I feel like there's a lot of information I personally got to sort through. and, and yeah, I come probably up with overwhelmed you. Uh, no, no, not at all. I'm really happy we sat down and talked because uh, I never, I'm always, anytime I hear about ketosis, it's always listening or reading something else. And so it's interesting to like be able to ask the questions directly. And so thank you for that. Oh, you're um, welcome. Yeah. Is there anything, I'm, I'm, pr I'm pretty sure I'd like to talk to you again, if that's okay, or even meet up in person. I, I, I've always been interested in CrossFit, but I never, I never did it. Um, CrossFitters have the most impressive physiques, honestly. Like I, you know, I, 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 if you look at MMA fighters and you look at like bodybuilders, but there's something about CrossFitters that just look, they, it looks like a solid functional body. Like they know exactly how to use their body, if that makes any kind of sense. So yeah. we'll probably have to talk more about that later on. But is there anything else you wanted to, to, to um, explain before I end it? Um, I, no, except for parting words. And I do want to get together with you again. I think we can work together to, to do things that are helpful. To yeah. Um, look, if you're pre-diabetic, I can tell you this with 100 million percent of confidence. You can reverse that condition by going on a well-formulated ketogenic diet. And it can happen really, really fast. Uh, the sugar part of it happens fast. The other parts of it, kidneys, kidneys. Uh, coming back uh, to what they should be doing in the liver and all that, that takes longer. That's why keto adaption, I'm saying two to three months. And if you, if you do the research and you look at, uh, and you can get on YouTube, if you look at Steve Finney and Volek's work, they're even saying now that to see the full benefits in, in athleticism, you know, they're looking at guys who have been ketogenic for 20 months. So it takes a while for all the benefit but the sugar platform is going to react immediately. You're going to just normalize. It's going to be really, really fast. And you're, you know, okay. you're going to be a happy camper. Um, gotcha. And some of the things that you brought up that were negatives, like the cake and stuff like that, 
those are things that you can modulate. You can figure out you're not going to be able to eat that stuff in any sort of regular sense. You will lose all the benefits immediately coming back into the insulin world. But, you know, there are ways to deal with getting enough, right? Right. Over time. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. That, um, th that does bring up one more question. I'm sorry if I, if you don't mind. Um, so when you start running off of the BHP, BHBs, right? Um, and you're in, you're living that keto lifestyle. Let's say you do quote unquote mess up and you have a cupcake, right? How, how far does that throw you off? Does it reset the whole thing? Does it? Are you like insulin is a powerful um, negative uh, regulator of ketosis. So like as soon as you eat that cupcake, you're going to be out of ketosis. The, the current level of thinking at, at the level of research is that it probably takes on average maybe three to four days to get back in uh, keto adaption if you were keto okay. adapted to start with. Uh, mm -hmm. Honestly, no, nobody really knows how long it takes to get back in. And I think probably this is another one of those things that is uh, individualized and it probably matters how long you've been keto adapted to. Um, but it's the kind of thing where uh, you don't want to get in a habit of it. And then the other thing to worry about is that what, what we do understand is that it pretty much brings back the sugar cravings instantaneously. Like the next day, you're probably yeah. going to want another cupcake. Yeah. So, um you know, I have not, I have to be upfront with you. I have not been out of ketosis since I started this. Two years um, ago, a year and seven months ago. Yeah. But I have clients who seem to be able to go 10 or 12 days and then they have a bad day. Mm -hmm. And it usually is taking, uh, I'm thinking of one instance right now, about a week to get back in where the ketones are running at a constant level again, where the blood sugar is, you know, down on a threshold and it's not bouncing all over the place. Um, gotcha. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, Hey, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. I really appreciate you talking to me. Um, thank you. And we'll have to get together sometime. All right. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah. And, uh, and we'll do it again. Good.